Welcome to Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. And it is my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Savita Dehavantari on episode three. I'm your host, Tyler, and I'm really, really excited to talk to Savita about her amazing journey into science, learn a little bit about Savita's personal life and some of the current projects and past projects she's worked on in the fields of diabetic and cardiac research. Without further ado, I'm going to allow Savita to tell us about her story. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Savita Dehavantari. She's a research scientist. Uh, she slash her is a research scientist in metabolism and diabetes uh, and imaging programs at Lawson Health Research Institute in London, Ontario. Her research program focuses on the cell biology of diabetes, and she has developed a novel molecular imaging tool to investigate the cellular dysfunction of pancreatic islets. She's also a assistant director and EDI lead at Lawson serving on Ontario Hospital's Association of Anti-Racism Task Force and participates in the Diversity and Inclusion Working Group of the World Molecular Imaging Society. Dr. Dehavantari firmly believes that diversity drives scientific excellence and policies must be restructured to ensure the hospital-based research truly benefits our society as a whole. That is uh, Dr. Savita Dehavantari, and we'll start this podcast off by asking the first question, which is, tell us a little bit about how you got into research. Like, early on, what was the drive that made you interested in science? Well, I think my interest in science and my interest in research are two separate things. My interest in science actually was cultivated from a very early age. You know, I, and I, at this point, I do want to acknowledge my privilege in having two sets of uh, one set of parents at home, both of whom valued education, and especially a father who valued women's education. That's really important, especially from somebody like me who comes from the South Asian community. You know, I didn't know it was science at the time. But when I was young, you know, I'm seven, eight, nine years old, I would geek out in my father's garden trying to identify the plants, digging them up, trying to figure out how the roots worked, what the soil was about, identifying the trees in the neighborhood. You know, I didn't know it was called science, but that's sort of what I derived pleasure from. And later on, as I was growing up, I think my father kind of directed my energies towards taking more science in school and and, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about how things worked. You know, um, I sort of have a, I guess, a natural curiosity about how things work in the natural world. And, and, and science was able to kind of direct that energy. And now in terms of research, right, how did I end up being interested in research? I think uh, my first experience experience in trying to do research in an academic setting was in my fourth year of undergrad. You know, I, I went to university. Um, I did a lot of courses in, in science and physiology, in biology. And when I had the opportunity to do a research project in my fourth year, I took it. I thought, well, this might be kind of interesting because I didn't know much about 
Um, yeah, during the course of that fourth year project, I, I decided I liked it. I enjoyed formulating questions, testing hypotheses, doing experiments, um, writing them up, trying to figure out what the significance of the findings were. And all of that really appealed to me. So that's sort of when I became really interested in pursuing research in the academic space. Thank you for telling us your story, uh, Savita, because, you know, that's kind of a similar path that I took in exploring science at an early age. And it's really good to hear that you had encouraging parents to enter that direction. You know, I had the same kind of path and that's, it's interesting to always hear the different stories and how we started uh, in those programs. So maybe leading after that, you then pursued graduate school and your postdoc years, and then you had to start a research program, uh, correct? Uh, yeah. And, and you know what, I mean, my path through grad school and postdoctoral training, it was not a linear path. It was a series, I like to call it a series of happy accidents. Um, even after I was finished my undergrad and the fourth year research project, I still didn't know what to do. I thought maybe I could apply to vet school. So I applied to vet school. I didn't get in. Um, I worked a little while and I just kind of took my time to decide what I wanted to do. And so, so I like to tell, you know, young people that uh, it's okay to not know what you're going to do at the end of your bachelor's degree. Um, it's fine. You have time. If you have time, uh, take a, take a job doing whatever it is that you like to do and decide what you want to do. If you want to use your, your science background uh, to do research or to do something else. So I took about a year and a half off uh, before I decided that I would do a master's degree. And so I did the master's degree and, um, and even then it was kind of a bumpy road because uh, the first PhD program that I applied to didn't accept me. So I thought, okay, I applied for another program, got in, and after about three or four months, it was obvious to me that it wasn't going to work. The relationship between me and my supervisor was just not happening. And I was, again, very privileged to have a, an NSERC um, postgraduate fellowship. So I had money and I could, I could take it with me wherever I wanted to go. So I ended up switching labs and, and uh, doing my PhD with somebody else, which then actually set my career trajectory. So finally, you know, by the time I, I did a second crack at my PhD, it actually set the trajectory for what I wanted to do and eventually I'm doing. And then maybe advice for young people as well, like after the PhD or after graduate school, how do you decide where to go for a postdoc or what to do in the postdoc? Do you pick something that you're already kind of doing similar to what your graduate school was or what was your path into the postdoc years? So I would suggest for those PhD students who want to do a postdoc, Search for something slightly outside your comfort zone because you are already the expert in your field doing what you are doing. So seek out something that will challenge you, that takes you slightly out of your comfort zone because a postdoc is training, right? It's a continuation of your training, but something that is comp maybe complementary to what you're doing. So for example, my PhD was about... Um, 
doing protein purification and characterizing enzymes that functioned in diabetes. And then I decided my postdoc would be more sort of cell biology related, trying to figure out instead of the enzyme story, trying to figure out how hormones actually traveled within cells and how they were transported within cells. And so I was able to acquire a whole new suite of technical skills that accompanied that project. And also for me, how did I choose my particular supervisor? Well, as a PhD student, you're always reading lots of papers, right? And, And you get familiar with different groups that are doing different types of work. And I had sort of focused on this one group at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and, we're, and I was following their work. They published a, a really important paper in the field. And I read the paper and I thought, this would be really cool to work in their lab. And so I contacted uh, the PI. They were very open to meeting with me and talking about some of the work that I was doing and if I would be a good fit in their lab. And it, uh, it clicked. And so, uh, so I joined their lab and, um, yeah, so that's sort of how that whole PhD to postdoc transition happened for me. Okay. No, no, that's, uh, definitely, uh, good advice for people that are going towards that path. And so the question being is after a postdoc and after my postdoc, I was leaning heavily towards, academia as a career path and I chose not academia in the end what was the driving factor to go towards academia versus maybe industry why was that choice made for you and how do you feel that choice is being judged by others currently like when someone is looking from the outside in and they're saying, well, do I go academia? Do I go industry? Do you feel there's enough resources for people to choose which one they would want to lean towards? So, okay. So let's go back to what affected my choice. For me, I didn't really see much of a choice. My, my kind of path that I had laid out for myself was to continue in academia. Would I have made a different choice if somebody had told me more about opportunities in industry? Maybe. I don't know. The thing that appealed to me about academia was that you could do lots of things. So you could do research, you could teach, which appealed to me, and you could do administrative work. So that's kind of where I saw myself going. So in in terms of do people now get enough information to make that choice? I would say no, and I say that based on two things. The first thing is, I think a lot of postdocs rely on their supervisors for that kind of advice, but those are the worst people you can rely on that kind of advice for because those are the people who have gone through academia, so they don't know anything else. Unless you have a supervisor who has had experience outside of academia, then it's valuable. But for supervisors who have been in academia all their life, they're the wrong person to ask about opportunities outside of academia. What you will need to do as a postdoc or even as a PhD student is if you have decided that you want to look at opportunities outside of academia, make those connections, make those connections at conferences, meet with industry reps, you know, meet with government reps. They're all there at the conferences. 
So meet with them, talk with them, develop your networks uh, in those spaces. Um, increasingly, I find that a lot of students, so the second part is a lot of PhD students I find are always asking about alternatives to academic careers. And that tells me that there's just not enough information out there for them. So I think a lot of student organizations within universities are now having career nights where they invite industry reps and government reps and other people to come and talk about uh, careers in those spaces. So take advantage of those opportunities as well. Um, and also uh, invite them. Invite them to give a talk to your student organization or, or, uh, or your lab. Invite them to give a seminar. And, um, and then if you really are interested, find out more about how it works. Right. Find out more about what it's like to be a, a scientist in industry. And um, one thing that my department here at the university does quite regular or used to do before the pandemic quite regularly was to seek out their alumni who worked in industry and in government and invite them to come and give talks. And that way our students had the opportunity to develop their networks through the alumni. So those are all the things I think I would encourage people to do. Uh, to explore different career paths um, after your PhD or your postdoc. Okay. No, that's that's great advice. And I hope Syntica is on the front of doing that. We, we definitely like to host webinars with young graduate students, um, or I guess not young, the proper word is graduate students early on in their, their graduate career. Uh, we present their work on our platform. We host webinars. Uh, we're working at being at the university for career fair days. And um, yeah, we, we should chat more after the podcast and I would be happy to help in any way possible and uh, mm, yeah. provide a seminar because that would be great. I know for a fact when I was in grad school, I didn't have those seminars and I had a lack of those connections, as you said, and really leaned on the advice of I would say my graduate supervisor was very open uh, to working in industry uh, or academia, which was nice. However, the postdoc supervisor was definitely heavily academia. And I think one, like, as you said, that was the path he had only seen in his life and had been right, involved right. with. So it was very uh, kind of one-sided in that direction. Uh, and, I'm glad at least during the graduate school years, I got to see both. Um, I think the landscape is also changing. I'm involved in a, um, uh, an NSERC training program. And part of that training program for the graduate students is to participate in an internship in industry. And, and so I think the tide is slowly changing to avail students of career paths that are outside academia. Okay. That's, that's really good to hear. Now, you're at the point, you're given an academic position. What were the challenges for yourself starting a lab? And maybe more on the personal side, you know, we talked about this at the beginning where you were echoing the concern of entering this male-dominated field. How did you maneuver through that challenge with starting your lab and maybe I guess the other challenges, financial, getting equipment in students. Let, let's maybe dive a little into those challenges that you saw when you were entering. 
Well, I've always kind of worked in male-dominated fields. I mean, you know, I've I've been in my position for 20 years, and my education started, you know, way back in 1984. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> I've seen a lot of changes. A lot of things stay the same, but a lot of things have changed in respect to sort of male-female um, equality and uh, representation in, in the field of science that I do. What I want to say is that the jump from the postdoc to being a, a you know brand new principal investigator is a big jump. It's a shock. It's a shock because it's a job that your postdoc training doesn't train you for. This is a conversation that I've had with, with lots of my colleagues. And the postdoc, what it does, it trains you how to do research. That's it, right? 100% of your time is spent on the bench doing research, doing experiments, writing up your papers, publishing your papers, developing networks. Um, you don't get any experience in how to teach. And if you're lucky, maybe your supervisor will allow you to supervise a student or two during the course of your postdoc and that is all the exposure you get for the teaching part and when you're when you get this position as in academia as a new pi all of a sudden research becomes a very small part of what you do you have to serve on administrative committees you have to start writing grants you have to hire people you have to um, get equipment you have to order things you have to make a budget all these things that you are simply not trained to do as a postdoc. And it's a shock. It really is. So that was a huge transition. And also for me personally, uh, another transition was the shift in field. So I was trained as a cell biologist and I had certain skills, technical skills that came with that field. And when I landed in my PI position, I was asked to develop a program in imaging, which I knew nothing about. And I was hired, I guess, because they saw me as kind of an opportunity to develop collaborations between people who did cell biology and people who did diagnostic imaging. And so I literally sat at my desk for a year trying to figure out not just the logistics of um opening up a new lab and hiring people and maintaining budgets and doing all that sort of stuff, but also this kind of switch in my field of expertise. So yeah, that was a big learning curve. I had people all along who helped me, right? I did. Uh, the director of my institute, the director of the pro imaging program, they were all very enthusiastic and, and uh, got me involved in lots of projects, um, which was nice. So that really did help sort of jumpstart the research end of it. But yeah, it's a big learning curve to to start up a new lab. And one of the things that I think the academic centers could improve on is having a more comprehensive onboarding process for new faculty. Tell them, you know, enroll them in courses. Say you have to take a course in how to teach. You have to take a course in how to um, design a course. You have to take a course in how to manage a lab, how to manage students. Um, yeah, that would that would really have helped. Um, right now, at the twenty-year time point of my career, I'm I'm finally comfortable in managing people. It took a long time. Well, I was going to say, and we've worked together on collaborative projects in the past, and I always found you guided the project well and 
you were so well organized and we met timelines and it was just a great process overall and but it took time i guess to get there right it took time to get there it did um and you know i didn't have any training in how to get there so i was relying a lot on you know what my peers were doing what my peers were not doing and 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 really just going online and seeking out resources you know how, how to manage people how to manage a lab and how to do collaborations um, I, I do want to get back to your your initial thoughts on you know working in a in a male-dominated base and you know, I, I'm doing a lot of work now in equity and diversity, and this is one of the things that has always sort of been in my mind, right? I mean, I, I told you that I was have been working in a male-dominated space, and for the longest time, I just was thinking that I should just put my head down and conform to the culture and do the work. And that way, you know, I would um, I would get recognized, I would get promoted, and that's sort of how things would work. And recently, um, looking back on it, you know, I wish I had sort of done things a little bit differently. Um, I think what I should have done early on was really seek out, at, at the stage at which I was a new PI, seek out more female mentorship outside my field. I think that would have helped me feel a little bit more or have like a sense of belonging. Um, now, having said that, the, the place where I work is great. We have a great social network here uh, where people from all sort of hierarchical levels work together. So faculty, technicians, staff, students, we all sort of work together and have social events together and that part of it was really great it it really helped sort of smooth my transition as a new pi but i think it would have been nice to have had a couple of senior female leaders kind of define a path for me and this is what i'm trying to do right now define the path for the younger women the younger people of color who join our department and say, okay, here are the strategies we need to, to not just hire you, but to keep you here, to make you feel that you belong, and to make you progress through the um, process of promotion and, and leadership. So, you know, maybe that's something we can get into a little bit later in the conversation. But um, having a clearly defined path would, would really, I think, help. Um, and that's something that, you know, in the past... I think a lot of when I when I talk to some of the senior men in my field or in, in my department, it's something they never thought about because it kind of happened organically for them. Uh, there's a lot of hidden things, a lot of behind the scenes processes that worked for them that enabled them to to progress in their careers and progress to positions of leadership. And part of what I want to do is is make that not hidden. Right. Just say, you know, these are the milestones. These are the timelines. These are the criteria for promotion. This is what we expect. These are the criteria for leadership positions if you want to pursue that. And then giving them meaningful sponsorship and support to to achieve those goals if they if they wish to um, pursue positions in leadership in academia. No, definitely an important aspect and having that guidance, especially from someone of a similar cultural or 
uh, gender background to help guide uh, an individual. It's it's hugely important. I'm going to jump back on the, because ultimately I want to have the audience hear about your current projects. And maybe you can touch a little bit on what were the initial projects when you first started? Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of what you're diving into now and in some of your research projects and learning more about um, the intricacies of that. Yeah. So um, when I first started, I kind of had two research projects ongoing and I, and I still kind of do. So like I said, I was trained as a cell biologist. And so one of the nice things about my postdoc supervisor is that we crafted a project that I could take with me. Uh, so I could get sort of a running start on doing research. And because I had that project to take with me, I was able to actually secure my first uh, external grant. Um, and that really gave me a good head start in, in getting my research up and going. And that was important because this was a field in which I was trained, in which I was with which I was familiar. And this is a field of, of diabetes and, and specifically islet biology. So I am really interested and have been interested for quite a while in, in how hormones are synthesized and secreted from the pancreatic islet. And this is relevant to diabetes because insulin is the hormone that controls blood sugar and insulin is a hormone that is lacking in people with diabetes, which leads to a whole host of metabolic issues. There's another hormone called glucagon that is secreted from the pancreatic islet uh, that acts sort of as in counter-regulation to that of insulin. And um, this is the hormone that I'm actually very interested in. I'm interested in how its secretion is controlled. I'm interested in how um, the cell actually makes glucagon and how glucagon is actually transported through the cell. So this is like so quintessential cell biology questions that really excite me. Um, and I was able to take that and get my first grant based on that project. And it's a project that I'm still working on. So NSERC has been a great supporter of this, of this research program. And, uh, and right now um, I've got a couple of really great um, talented students who've just started with me. And we are continuing to pursue this question of how does glucagon get to where it needs to be to be secreted? How is glucagon secretion actually being controlled? Because this is a really important issue in diabetes right now. A lot of pharmaceutical companies are working on this uh, question uh, because they want to improve the current treatments we have for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So, um, so right now we've um, identified kind of a new protein uh, within the, the pancreatic alpha cell, which is a cell that makes glucagon. And we're trying to figure out how that protein works in controlling glucagon secretion with the idea that this potentially might be a druggable target for, for the treatment of diabetes. So that's one question that I've been working on, you know, really for the past 20 years and, and got me started on in my career. And like I said, that's important because the other thing that I was working on and the reason that I was recruited to where I am now is, is trying to develop develop um, collaborations with the diagnostic imaging researchers and developing ways of visualizing pancreatic islet function in vivo. And that was a big learning curve because I didn't know anything about imaging. And so while I had this other research program going, I was able to then 
uh, focus on these new ideas about how to visualize islet function in a non-invasive manner, developing new uh, molecular imaging uh, probes um, and ways of visualizing the pancreas in vivo. That involved developing a lot of interdisciplinary research teams, right, as you well know. And so I needed to develop uh, collaborations with people who could do the synthetic chemistry, with people who could do the radiochemistry, with people who knew imaging physics and the strengths and limitations of various imaging modalities. And, um, and that project ended up being quite successful in branching out into other areas, such as heart disease. So yeah, so the way I started my career was, was actually really nice in, in continuing along with a project that I knew very well and starting up a new research program that I actually did not know very well, uh, but was um, in the end very excited to, to have learned a lot about how imaging works and how we could harness the power of imaging to, to visualize uh, pancreatic function in vivo. Yeah, and well, I was going to ask, how does it tie into your imaging story? Because that was what you were trying to develop as a new recruit and as a young assistant professor. And so I'm glad you answered that question. Maybe for the audience, though, how did the diabetic research lean into the cardiac? How did that transition? Yeah, so that was... um... That's that was for me science that it's most pure. So what do I mean by that? You know, I mean, as scientists, we have to write grant proposals and we have to have um, sort of a rationale for why we want to do what we want to do and, and convince other people this is how we're going to go about doing and answering this question and having kind of a pre-printed written package of, of what it is that we're going to do. Science that is most pure for me is just following your nose and uh, being able to change your thinking in light of new evidence and being able to change your hypotheses in light of new evidence. So what happened with, um, with this project was we were looking for new biomarkers for imaging the pancreas, right? Pancreatic islets. And my collaborator, who was your former PhD supervisor, uh, was, had this idea of this particular receptor that was expressed on the surface of a lot of different types of cells. And I knew it was expressed somewhere in the pancreatic islet. And so I sent a fourth year project student on this research program. And we looked and looked and looked and looked for this receptor in the pancreatic islet. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it at all. And so I thought, okay, we can either let that project go or try to figure out where this receptor actually is expressed. And so we did a tissue screen. I said, let's find out. So we did a whole tissue screen on trying to find out where this protein was. And it turned out that it was expressed in very, very high amounts in the heart. And it turned out that it was expressed in very high amounts in the myocardium. So the muscle of the heart. And I thought, okay, I don't know anything about the heart but I do know people who do know quite a bit about the heart. And so I was on the phone, I was on my email, trying to make connections and developing a network uh, with, um, with researchers and clinicians, because I kind of saw that if we could develop an imaging biomarker for the heart, it could be relevant for the detection of heart disease and heart failure. Um, and so it was just serendipity. That's how that whole cardiac program started, um, just by... Uh, not finding a, a protein in the expected tissue, looking around at other tissues to see where they were expressed and finding out, oh, it's in the heart. Um, let's run with it. It's good to hear that story. 
surprising. I never talked to you about it over our years of collaboration and research projects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just never came up in conversation, I guess. And yeah. uh, it's good to hear that connection. And um, okay, so maybe on the more on the imaging side. So you're developing these collaborations and you're using these various various tools to image, you know, glucagon and the protein receptor that we talked about in the cardiac tissue, the, the ghrelin receptor. Um, mm -hmm. And what are the modalities that you're using to image? And do you find it useful to use multi-modalities or can it sometimes give too much information? Maybe I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. Right. So that's a really important question in imaging research. You know, what imaging modality are you using and why? Um, and one thing that I realized very early on is because I'm not an imaging scientist, I was not, I was not constrained by expertise in a particular imaging modality. I think the real strength in using an imaging approach to investigate any kind of chronic disease is to understand the strengths and limitations of the imaging modalities that you're using and uh, combining them. Combining imaging modalities will highlight their strengths, minimize their limitations. So that's, for example, that's why we use a combination of positron emission tomography or PET and um, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, because we know that MRI is really good at resolution and soft tissue contrast. And we know that PET is really good for imaging function. And, and it's a very sensitive method to doing so. So when you combine those two imaging modalities, you can get a lot of information uh, from a single scan. Uh, your question is, does it give too much information? It gives a lot of information. So a lot of our research time is spent on image analysis and extracting information from the images that we have. Um, and I think it's great. I think that if you can get information on you know, various parameters of heart function, like the ejection fraction, stroke volume, um, and also uh, things like, okay, where is this receptor being expressed? How does it change in, in, in heart failure? Um, and and sort, of, sort of equating or trying to develop a relationship between where this receptor is expressed, how does it change, and how does it correlate with measures of heart function? Um, very, very powerful. It's very powerful. So yeah, yeah, combining imaging modalities really, I think, is is the way to go. I think nowadays it's going to be very rare where you um, can answer your your question based on um, a single imaging modality, unless that question is based on developing that imaging modality, like the technical part of developing it. Um, the other thing with with what we do in molecular imaging and developing these new tools to assess uh, chronic disease progression is um, we always have to confirm it, you know, confirm it with known imaging modalities and, and, and pathology, like standard pathology. And so you need to also bring those technologies in to whatever it is that you're doing. So we're really using kind of a multitude, right, of, of ways to image cells, image tissue, image whole body function, um, and, and image whole body pathology. Um, and so that really is sort of what, where I think the, the strength of imaging is. Yeah, no, I totally agree on that. And transitioning from the bench to the clinic, those modalities, in your opinion, are, 
or maybe what is your opinion on the transition from the bench side to the clinic? And I guess the smooth transition or lack of smooth transition, if we want to call it that, mm-hmm. um, in using those modalities uh, at the bench in the lab and then translating that into the clinic with those same imaging modalities. Right. So that's a, that's a huge question that the field of molecular imaging has really struggled with, I think, over the last five, six years or so. Uh, what we see is um, some really exciting developments in molecular imaging, uh, different types of nanoparticles, um, you know, different types of um, uh, PET imaging tracers, um, really innovative chemistries that are going on in, in developing new and novel contrast agents, really innovative um, physics in trying to improve contrast and resolution and decrease background uh, on the imaging scans. And a lot of this research, right, preclinical research, is dependent on um, our use of uh, small animal models of disease. And so we can do really cool and innovative things. And also the small animal models of disease we we can be very innovative with. We can develop all sorts of reporter mice, um, all sorts of genetically modified mice to visualize what it is that we want to visualize. Um, we can uh, genetically engineer the cells that we want to image and discover new things about how the disease progresses. The leap to translational is, is, is big. And so I think what we need to keep in mind is as we're developing these really cool research tools in imaging um, to discover new things about a particular disease process. Always in the back of your mind is, is this a relevant mechanism for the clinical progression of the disease? And if it is, how do we develop a methodology to investigate this mechanism in people? And this is where collaboration with clinicians uh, and clinical fellows is key. We really need them to tell us what are the big questions in the type of disease that you want to image and how can we sort of work together, right, with this clinical question, developing um, a way to understand that clinical question more in a preclinical model and then taking it back to the clinic. I think a lot of the questions need to originate in the clinic. And I know a lot of research scientists say, oh, no, no, you know, we're the experts. We have PhDs. We know how to do research. But, and yes, we do, right? Yes, we do how to know, we know how to do research because that's what we're trained. But as basic scientists, we're not trained to understand what are the clinically relevant questions. And that's up to the clinicians. So I think developing much more of a partnership with, with clinicians will be really, really helpful in trying to move some of these technologies into the clinic. So you still think there's a, a bit of a lack of synergy between the clinicians and the researchers at this point, not enough communication? Well, there is. At the last Congress of the World Molecular Imaging Society, um, I was very pleased to see a lot more um, translatable outcomes of some of the molecular imaging uh, that people are doing. So I think it's moving in that direction, right? It's, a, it's always a very dynamic process. Um, and, and so I, I think that a lot of the stuff 
uh, in, in developing sort of uh, really new um, chemistries and contrast agents, that's kind of where a lot of the translation is happening. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other like genetic um, ways of interrogating chronic disease that people are still going to do to develop a deeper understanding of how disease progresses. That approach by itself is not going to be translatable. But I think that um, once we know more about certain aspects of the disease that clinicians tell us are important, then then I think we're just going to see more and more and more of of the uh, of the clinical translation happening. But yeah, you know, I mean, one of the issues that we're we run into sometimes at our institution is um, clinicians are not always interested in research, right? And so I think that um, to do the clinical translation piece, you need to get clinicians who are really interested in the research and interested in moving those findings into the clinic. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely true. Now, okay, so I want to touch on one little thing about the animal models. So mm-hmm. I've had a debate over and over again with many people and researchers, people that have never even been introduced to science and research. And I always get the question, we do stuff at the cellular level in a Petri dish with cells. And we identify a new novel imaging agent that maybe it's PET, maybe it's MRI, and it works beautifully in cells in a Petri dish. And then we translate that into a small animal model and it fails. And so I've had this back and forth discussion with many people. Do we just skip the cell step about trying new novel imaging agents? Or is that step needed eventually as the second step? Maybe I'm just curious on your thoughts mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, in the past, we've collaborated on these questions. And um, I don't think we st- skip the cell step, but we we don't dwell on it, right? We do initial screenings on cells to to sort of identify, okay, what is a good candidate probe that will bind to a receptor? What is a good candidate probe that will um, recognize this enzyme, right? The in vitro stuff is still important uh, in that respect. But once you've done that, get into the animal as soon as possible. Because you're right, the Petri dish will only tell you so much, but it may behave completely differently in within the whole organism because you're dealing with so many other variables, right, in the organism. You're dealing with issues of delivery, metabolism, um, uh, you know, and, and, and uptake by other organs, non-specific or specific. So uh, once you use your cells kind of as a screen, right, to make sure that whatever imaging contrast agent you have developed actually recognizes the target, get it into animals as soon as possible. I think that's probably the best thing to do. Okay. No, yeah, I'm definitely on the side of the, the understanding the importance of the cellular side of identifying new imaging agents and what's happening at the cellular level, but pushing it into an animal model safely um, is is definitely an important aspect of understanding whether that's going to translate into the clinic at some point. Um, maybe we'll, 
we've really touched on your research and but i also want to know about your activities outside of research and maybe we'll start with certain things that you're advocating for outside of research we've touched on a bit of them but maybe we go through some ones that we missed and didn't touch on and organizations that you're a part of and uh how you're advocating is it through social media is it weekly meetings and how is that going and part of outside of research activities yeah so do you mean outside of research activities or do you mean um you know one of the things that comes to mind is advocating for research outside the realm of academia i suppose and uh yeah yeah and this is something that i talk to my students quite a lot about we talk about this is what we do as scientists, but what is our societal responsibility as scientists as well? And this is important um, in, in the wake of, of COVID, for example. And we see uh, a lot of people wanting more information. We see a lot of disinformation out there. And I think as scientists, we have a social responsibility to, to educate the public in, in sort of what is it, what is it that we do and how is it going to be beneficial, right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, and uh, I do try to amplify the voices of the experts, for example, in infectious disease and COVID um, and, and other uh, issues as well, diabetes, for example. Um, so I try to really amplify those voices, add to the conversation, um, sometimes Twitter feels like you're shouting into the void because, you know, as a scientist, if you have 5,000 followers, it's like, oh, wow, that's huge, right? But, you know, celebrities can have, right, million, tens of millions of followers, and they're the ones who get all of the attention. So, but but I think it's, it's worth doing. I think um, just trying to amplify good science um, and separating it from the disinformation is really a responsibility that we all should should take on. And like I said, I, I try to do it to th through Twitter. Um, and one of the things that we are talking about here at Lawson is really how to, in how to improve our engagement with the local community, because I think community engagement and research is a huge piece that's just missing. And I think in part contributes to the rise of misinformation and disinformation about science. Um, there is a real disconnect between what scientists do and their relationship with the community. Um, and one of the things that I want to do that is on my plate to do in the next five years is really to improve relationships with the local community, tell them who we are, what is it that we do, and, and basically ask them, you know, what, what are some of the questions that you have that you think we should be working on? Not really approach community engagement from the point of the view that, oh, we're the experts and we're here to tell you what's important. It's, well, what are the questions that you have about diabetes or cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's or COVID or any other infectious disease? And how can, how can we help, right? How can we help improve your understanding? How can we help in investing in research dollars to investigate the questions that are important to you? So that involves kind of a huge u-turn in, in scientific thinking where we think well we're the experts and we define the questions to well what is really relevant to society and how can we investigate those questions 
to really benefit all of society. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. A bit on the social media side of things and Twitter and, you know, something did hit me when you said it, you said, you know, as a scientist, we may have 5,000 followers, but then there's the celebrity or the influencer that has millions. Is there a way we can bridge that gap? And it, one total random thought that came to mind is Max Domi. So Max Domi is a hockey player and he lives with type one diabetes and he talks openly about his type one diabetes. Is there a way we can kind of bridge that knowledge and then have our voice through those platforms? Or do you even think it would help if our voice got to those types of platforms with people that had millions of followers? Yeah, this is something that as Canadians, we're not very good at doing. The Americans are great at doing it. Um, they enlist celebrities to help with things like stem cell research, research in type 1 diabetes, uh, research in Alzheimer's. They leverage that. They have a presence on Capitol Hill and they can lobby um, their uh, Congress people and their senators uh, to invest more in, in research that way. Um, and that's something that I think we, we need to learn how to do. Um, there are examples of celebrities that will help. Uh, one um, celebrity that has helped locally that comes to mind is, um, to me, is Eric Lindros. So he, because he had problems with concussions and to the point where he could no longer play. And so he invested very heavily in concussion research uh, in London um, and opened up a whole wing at uh, LHSC. So, uh, so yeah, there are examples of uh, engaging with celebrities to really draw attention to and invest in certain certain diseases or certain types of scientific research uh, and raising awareness about how important it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that that would be um, a, a really powerful way of trying to leverage research dollars and, and drawing awareness and um, come at the same time, maybe combating uh, misinformation on, on things. I do know that, um, for example, uh, we all know that Dolly Parton invested in the Moderna vaccine for COVID. And so she was very powerful in, um, in getting people uh, to be vaccinated against COVID. So things like that, yeah, would be, would be very useful, I think. Okay, so maybe on your side of your expertise in uh, diabetic research and diabetes, what are maybe one or two of the biggest gaps or problems with people living with diabetes now? And what's the path to fill the gaps? Or maybe what's the starting steps that we're missing to fill those gaps? Um, there's sort of two issues that come to mind. One, one is in type one. And in type one, you know, the islet transplantation was supposed to be the cure. And it's not. Uh, a lot of people revert back, uh, you know, anywhere from two to five to 10 years after having an initial islet transplant, because these transplants simply don't survive. So um, there's, there's kind of a gap there. And what is the next step? to really replace what type 1 diabetes, um, people with type 1 diabetes don't have, and that is insulin-producing cells. That's a big gap. 
and also I think there's been some movement in again people with type one trying to have new and improved ways of managing and monitoring their glucose levels. There have been a lot of innovations that have resulted in um, implantable devices that can record blood glucose. And, and so that, that gap is being closed. So now how to connect that monitoring of glucose with a need to administer insulin um, and develop kind of a sort of an artificial pancreas, right, um, is, is a gap that is being worked on. I think once a fully functional artificial pancreas is developed, that will be not a cure, but a more permanent treatment for, for type 1. The other gap I see is in type 2, because type 2 is a much more complex disease. There are various manifestations, early onset type, or well, in the early stages of type 2, where people make a lot more insulin than they need. Um, and are resistant to the effects of insulin to late stage type 2 where they actually need more insulin uh, in order to uh, maintain their blood glucose levels. And so there's a whole, um, I don't say gap, but the gap, again, the gap is closing in, you know, what are the nutritional needs of people who are trying to navigate this changing metabolic landscape within their own bodies? So, uh, so yeah, so I think those are two really important areas where um, there's a lot of movement in terms of research and, and trying to get those issues into the clinic. And, you know, for example, having an endocrinologist describe a, a personalized diet to better manage you know, blood glucose levels in, in people with type 2. Nutrition is one of those places where there's a lot of misinformation, right? I mean, there's so many diet books out there. There's so many sort of magic cures, eat this food, don't eat this food. And I think a lot of that needs to be, um, needs to be weeded out uh, with some really good, rigorous nutritional research on how to better manage type two. Okay. Yeah, no, I, uh, I definitely have struggled with nutrition all my life and it's probably a big part of it is because of what you read and what you see and what you hear from others and mm -hmm. never really got a straight answer on how to balance nutrition properly. And um, I'm fortunate that at least at this point in my life, I'm not living with diabetes, but I can imagine the struggles of living with diabetes and balancing nutrition is extremely difficult. So now that you see these gaps, do you see that this is is it possible in 5, 10, 15 years where people won't have to suffer or live drastically different if they have diabetes? Or is it a longer game plan? Or maybe we, we don't really see or know that path completely yet, but what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, trying to improve the quality of life. Right for people who live with diabetes is um, is a big question. For somebody with type one, there's not a there's not a day that passes that they can't think about it. They're always aware of maintaining their blood glucose levels. They don't want to go too high. They don't want to go too low. 
And so that's, you know, that impacts on the quality of life of a person. And also people type two always having to worry about, you know, how much can you eat? When can you eat? Uh, I'm not allowed to eat this. I'm not allowed to eat that. Oh, I need to take my meds. So yeah, quality of life is huge. Those are big, big questions. Um, you know, and what can we do to make things a little bit easier? You know, that's, that's a hard question. That okay. really is. Um, I think... That sort of highlight, that question kind of highlights the need for people who live with diabetes to have a a medical team uh, taking care of them. And, you know, not so, for example, not just an endocrinologist, but they need, you know, mental health supports. uh, They need family. They need a multitude of people uh, helping them navigate through their through their uh, condition to make it easier for them. And also general awareness. For example, my brother-in-law has type one. He was diagnosed with type one when he was two or three years of age. So he's been living with with most of his whole life. And one of the things that he has struggled with is every time he goes to a different place for a job, he needs to tell them, I have type one, I need to eat at strictly regulated times, right? So for example, if there's a meeting that he has to go to and the meeting is at noon, he has to tell them, I need to bring my lunch. I have to eat. And so our society still has problems making accommodations for people with disabilities and for people who have diabetes. Um, I do know in the States, you know, they, and, and maybe here in Canada, the problem now is that we no longer have nurses in public schools. And so those nurses used to assist children in, in getting their insulin injections. Uh, there are issues with um, uh, not allowing access to needles so or, or drugs for, for, for kids. So all of that really adds to the burden of trying to navigate, you know, life <laughs> and learning. And, and having this barrier put in place where uh, people don't actually recognize that it's a problem and needs to be addressed or there need to be accommodations made so that people can actually function. Yeah, that's um, that all has to do and impacts really heavily on quality of life of people with diabetes. So, so um, I know that Diabetes Canada is working on a diabetes strategy, national diabetes strategy. So, so maybe some of those issues are contained within that strategy that then um, workplaces and and places of learning and schools can then implement. Okay, yeah, no, definitely. And I really like how you you indicated one point there, and it's a team of people to help someone that's struggling with diabetes, whether that's type 1 or type 2. But the one key team member that I think we always forget about is the mental illness side of it and the support to have emotionally and not the physical support. And I think that's something, and maybe I, maybe you agree is something that we forget when we're combating disease. We always seem to, at least I think we always seem to miss that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. something. And that's the thing with, uh, with science, you know, we say, well, here's your needles, here's your insulin, here's your glucose test strips, here's your glucometer, you're all set. Um, but they're not, right? People are people and they have a lot of emotional needs that need to be met um, to help them 
to help them get through uh, a society that is not equipped to deal with these sorts of things. Okay. No, thank you for that. That's appreciative. Okay. So maybe on the, I guess the lighter side, and then we'll kind of start to wrap up and, but what do you like to do outside of academia, outside of the lab? What are some activities and how does that play into a balanced lifestyle for yourself? Well, um, one of the things that I do is I'm a member of a master swim team. So I swim with them three times a week. Um, and that's pretty much my mental health care right there. Um, as well as my physical health, uh, swimming to me is just a part of my life. And it's something that I've never really given up. I've never gone without, uh, regardless of what I'm doing or where I'm working. I've always found a place to swim um, and people to swim with. So that's uh, that's kind of my my physical, emotional, social well-being part of it. Other things that I do, well, um, in the summertime, I make sure to take my vacation. And I tell my students to take their vacations, take time off. Uh, that's really important. Everybody is entitled to time off. Take it. Do whatever it is that you want to do, whether you want to go camping, whether you want to do a staycation, whether you just want to sit around and, and watch TV, it doesn't matter. Just take some time off from the th constant thinking that you're doing, which which I think is um, uh, sort of a healthier way of, of going about. When, one thing that scientists are really bad at, and I know I stereotype scientists quite a lot, but you know I've been a scientist for 40 years of my life, so I think I can stereotype them, um, is... Uh, is where we are, especially in academia, we are indoctrinated into thinking that our science is our life, right? This is our life. This is our obsession. We're always thinking about it and we're never away from it and we're always on. And that to me is an incredibly unhealthy attitude to have. And I'm, as I, as I progress in my career, I am more inclined to tell people Science is a job. It's your job. It's not who you are. It's not your identity. It's your job. And when I go home, when you go home at the end of the day, do other stuff. You don't have to think about science all the time. Now, sometimes we do. We have deadlines to meet. Fair enough. You know as well as I do about grant deadlines and things like that. And, and there's stuff that we so, sometimes have to do in the evenings. But you know, I tell people, don't make it a habit. It's, it should be an exception to work over time to meet your deadline, not a rule of thumb. You know, a lot of scientists, they feel they feel guilty. Like I, I met a colleague of mine in the parking lot of the grocery store, right, a year ago. And and he was, he was saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having a barbecue tonight. And he seemed almost apologetic about it. He said, I know you're supposed to be doing science all the time, but you got to take some time off. And I'm like, don't apologize for having a barbecue. <laughs> But that's what it's come to. And so I think it behooves people in, in, in academic science to just think of science as a, as a job and yeah. not an identity. No, I definitely felt the same way in grad school, even undergrad. I started research and independent research at that level. And I always felt if I go out for dinner with friends or to a movie or I'm at the gym, I felt bad that I wasn't doing my work and doing my science and I always felt that stress and that pressure um, and it's a relief to hear that 
yourself and hopefully others are expressing that it's okay to to get away from it and yeah okay and also you need to do it like it's a requirement but again you know tyler i've been in this position for 20 years and i can speak from this position of privilege of being a senior scientist and having had a successful career in academia if you had asked me 15 years ago i probably would have given you a different answer right i probably as a as a uh, a new investigator trying to get grants trying to get my lab up and going I would have said, oh my goodness, science is an obsession. It's what we do, it's, it's what we live for. I would have had probably the opposite answer of what I'm giving you now. So it all comes into hindsight for me. What advice would I give uh, young academic researchers now? Um, it's, it's a different world for them. It's much more competitive in terms of getting funding. It's much more competitive in trying to get your publications out. And uh, to, to say to them, oh, just relax, science is just a job, I think would really ring hollow. But there, there's an aspect of that I would like to, I hope that they understand is that, um, you know, your, your, your science is not your identity. And I think that if you can separate those two things, you will then find it much easier to have a balance between what you do to earn money and what you do outside of that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a balance that I'm still trying to find and even give advice to others as well. I find I still give that advice of, oh, well, we got to get this done and it's a deadline and that means we have to work overtime. And I, I don't think I've found that balance yet, unfortunately, but I'm, I'm striving for it. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, we all do. We all struggle with it. We are a very deadline-driven society. That's how we function. Get stuff done by this time. And like I said, that's fine. But if you find yourself rushing from deadline to deadline to deadline, then that, that's when it becomes a bit of a problem. Well, I saw a Twitter post the other day, and it was a, a, a researcher, a professor at Western, and they had posted um, the screenshot of a grant deadline and it was due in 14 days, but it was flashing red at the top of the screen. <laughs> and their exact point was, why does it have to be that up front and center? It feels yeah. as though every time you log in, I only have 14 days, but it's 14 days. Mm -hmm. Right. And they brought up the point of, does that mean I actually have to work? every single day for 14 days to complete this right and no there's days that you take away from it and you'll still meet your deadline even though you know this as well as i do we submit sometimes and it's due at noon and we submit at 11 50. um well at least i've done yeah that. and yeah, yeah, everybody does that. Everybody, you know, we all sort of submit things at the last moment, of course. And but again, that's that's how our society works. That's how we are wired to think. You know, yeah. meeting a deadline usually means scrambling at the last minute, despite our best intentions. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, just don't make science your life, your identity. Very cool. Very cool. I think cool. that's the best way of achieving balance. Well. Savita, I, I appreciate you taking the time today. And obviously, before I, I let you go on with your day, and 
did we miss anything? Is there something that you would give advice or need to say that is important to you before we kind of wrap up? Um, well, in terms of, you know, we've been, we've been talking about, a, you know, career in science and a career in academia. And, um, sometimes when you get on social media, you'll hear a lot of people trashing life in academia. Life in academia has its issues. Yes, it does. But so does every other job. Um, and the great thing about working in academia is that you are your own boss. You don't, you're not punching a time ticket. I come in when I want to, I leave when I want to, I work when I want to, and it's, and I think what I want to, right? I, I am the architect of my own research program. And it's that sort of freedom that is, is really great about the stuff that I do. And let's not forget, you know, again, the last 31 months we've been dealing with a pandemic and a good part of that time was um, spent in lockdown or in shutdown. And I was very fortunate in that I didn't lose a job. I kept earning my salary. I moved all of my office into my house and I was able to keep working and keep doing what I did. And I was very lucky that way. A lot of people were not. No. So, so that, that flexibility in academia, that freedom to design your own research and follow your own nose. That's what makes it all, makes it all good. Okay. And the diversity of jobs that you get within academia, you know, I, I derive the greatest joy from working with my students. They are the reason that the work gets done. So, so there's lots of things to enjoy if you want to go into academic science. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, have never been on the well i've been on the academic side not as a professor but as a student and as a i guess a trainee and i definitely saw the diversity and same with myself as a, a postdoctoral fellow i i didn't lose my job you know i was given a paycheck and an opportunity uh i was fortunate enough to be involved with COVID research which allowed me to be in the lab. It was definitely scary times to go into the mm -hmm. lab every day and uh, work with COVID-19 and uh, do viral and drug research uh, to help solve that issue. But uh, I definitely saw that as a, a silver lining and uh, a really fortunate opportunity to have a position to work every day. And I felt the same kind of coming into this stream of industry i was given an opportunity to work and covid hurt but it maybe it seemed to work well or sort of well with scientists and researchers in terms of being able to still work i, I know it definitely affected the grant and the production though and i think we can all agree on that well it it disproportionately affected people right and um, again, this is where the gender divide comes in. It disproportionately affected female researchers. They're the ones on whom the burden of home care falls. And um, there was a sharp drop off in the numbers of publications in which women were senior authors uh, over the last two years. And it will take a long time for that to recover. Unfortunately, there will be a lag in recovery. Um, and again, this comes back to the culture of academia and what's expected. 
you know, what, what, what is going to happen to those women who fell off the, the sort of productivity timeline that we have in academia? How will that affect their promotion, their retention? So these are questions that we really need to figure out the answer to. Uh, we need to develop strategies and structures in place to ensure that those people are, don't fall through the cracks. Um, so, yeah. 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 Well, there was even, uh, there was a, a very well-known researcher in the field of uh, imaging and I guess radiochemistry on Twitter the other day as well. And he had brought up the point of no more 8 a.m. meetings, no more 7 a.m. meetings, conferences on a weekend. And he was yes. advocating yes. against this because yes. yep. it just disrupts the home life. And at 7, 8 a.m., you're not thinking about a meeting. You're thinking about maybe having breakfast with your significant other, children out the door to school. It's it's a time for you and not to be involved with the meeting. And you know, I'm going to sit there and say I'm guilty about not even recognizing that. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. I, I didn't yes. recognize that. Yeah. It's a recognition that scientists are people too. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and that's important because all too often scientists and academia, academia sort of brush that off as not being important. Oh, you should work around that or you should give that up. And, and, and now that we have more and more of a diversity of people coming into science, you realize that that's just not the right way to do things. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, I completely agree. In fact, I'm going to my scientific society, the next meeting that I have with them, and I'm saying, don't hold the meeting over the weekend anymore. Just don't do it. Monday to Friday, we're good. Science uh, conferences are work. They're not a vacation. And, uh, and I wholeheartedly agree with, that was my colleague, uh, Jim Lewis, who, who made that tweet. And, um, and, and if we get more and more people like him who are in positions of power and authority and leadership saying these sorts of things, then yes, things will, will eventually change. Yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was uh, Dr. Lewis and it was good to see that come forward and shed light on that. That's, it's important for sure. Well, Savita, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today and discussing your journey into science and your work, which was really good to hear about what you're doing and how it diverged and that nonlinear path that you took and mm -hmm. that I still think you might continue to take with your research. It might diverge and change, but that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. That's the nice thing about science. Is that, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Let's try Let's that. do that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, well, you know, I and I hope we've collaborated on projects in the past and I hope we kind of maybe cross paths again and continue to do that. And um, because I definitely learned a lot from yourself as a mentor and appreciated that learning uh, and the knowledge you provided me. Um, it put me in a good position to where I am now. And so I appreciate that. And Again, I, I thank you for coming on the podcast today and telling your story. Thanks, Tyler. It was a pleasure. Anytime. What an amazing story that Savita told today. It was great to learn about her past, current, and future research. It was also great to learn a little bit about what Savita does outside of the lab and what she does within the community, how that has impacted beyond the community of London, Ontario. Thanks again, Dr. Devantari, for coming on the podcast 
and we look forward to having everyone tune in for the next episode. Again, thanks for listening to Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. Your host, Tyler. Have a wonderful evening. Mm-hmm.